Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the Learning Scientist Podcast. This is Dr. Cindy Niebel, and today I am joined by Kareem Farah, who's going to talk to us um, a bit about um, the things he's been up to and, um, in particular, the Modern Classrooms Project. So thank you so much for joining me, Kareem. You want to just kind of give everybody a little um, background about you? Sure, happy to, and thanks for having me. Um, my name is Kareem Fair. I'm the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project. Um, so I lead a nonprofit, basically, that uh, trains educators on a new methodology of teaching, and it's the methodology that I and my co-founder built when we were educators in D.C. public schools. We were teachers um, at the high school math level. We were supporting a really high diversity of learning levels and social-emotional needs, frustrated by um, kind of one-size-fits-all traditional models of instruction that are sort of lecture-driven and designed a new approach to teaching that really uh, is all about blending instruction, self-paced learning, and assessing students based on mastery. Fantastic. So when I was researching, getting ready for this, found out we both have some roots in St. Louis. You went to Wash U and I was there around the same time. That's pretty exciting, huh? I know. It was it was pretty surprising to hear that. Yes. Um, Wash U is my alma mater. I love that school. And it's also when I first discovered my passion for teaching. Yeah. And, and exciting because that's really where kind of the roots of the whole Learning Scientists project came about as well, because we all have some sort of connections to the Wash U psych department. So pretty funny little connection there. So Kareem, why don't you talk to me a little bit more about kind of the the problem that the Modern Classrooms Project aims to solve, right? Because I know it's this issue that that teachers are kind of just unhappy with their teaching. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when I joined the teaching profession, I was, I, I always tell folks I was irrationally optimistic. Like I came into the teaching profession uh, thinking that I was going to support a high diversity of learning levels and build strong relationships with students. And there was going to be this kind of joyful classroom that I would create. And I think the reality of teaching is it's not like that. You walk into a classroom, you have a huge diversity of learning levels and social emotional needs, and you use a model of instruction that's hundreds of years old that isn't designed to differentiate or personalize but instead is kind of designed for you to be a sage on a stage and for students to respond to like your rigid learning environment. And that was uninspiring to me, but also really ineffective at doing the core job, which is to meet students' needs, to, to look at a group of students and say, each of you are different. You have strengths, you have weaknesses, you have challenges. My job is to spend a year with you and try to move you across a continuum of mastery, but also make sure that you feel confident as learners. Um, so, I felt as an educator that I had no pathway to be successful uh, teaching in the way that I was taught to teach and teaching in the way that we all learned in that kind of traditional format. Um, and when we when we sought to change our classrooms, we realized that no one was really presenting an alternative. Uh, so we ended up just designing our own. Can you tell us a little bit about what's the alternative? What does that really look like? Um, and especially, I would love to hear some of the evidence backing for it too, because I think you're right that much of what happens in education these days is like, it's the way that it's always been and not always um, people stopping and saying, but like, 
what's the best way it should be, if that makes sense. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about about that, you know, without you necessarily giving us all your secret sauce. Well, I'm happy to give all the secret sauce, but I don't <laughs> want to bore people. So I'll try to be as clear as possible in explaining what the model is, and then I'll talk a little bit about the evidence base. Um, the model starts with blending instruction, and it starts with the thesis that lectures are the worst use of human time in a classroom, and that talking at students is not engaging for students, but it's also a really poor use of time for the educator. And then the question becomes, how do you get rid of lectures? Like, how do you stop lecturing? Um, and in our model, our belief is that sometimes direct instruction is important, and the best way to replace direct instruction is to build a bite size instructional video. And when I say build, I mean you the educator builds, not you know using Khan Academy or something like that. And that's no knock on those platforms. I just don't think they were built to replace core instruction. Once you get rid of that lecture, what you've done is remove the bottleneck to self-pacing. And I think self-pacing is something that is actually intuitive. Like I don't think anyone would think, oh, any living creature learns things at the exact same pace as uh, their peers. But that's just how school has been created. So we've adopted that structure of learning. But when you eliminate the lecture, well, now you can introduce this idea that students progress from one skill to the next, not based on day of the week, but based on when they're ready to move forward. And in our classrooms, we understand that you can't self-pace a whole year. So we self-pace in chunks. One or two weeks at a time, students are able to self-pace in bursts. Lessons are sort of given a classification based on their importance. So we have must-do skills and should-do skills and aspire-to-do skills to create some variability and personalization. And then the final frontier is once you can actually self-pace, well, now that what determines whether or not you move on from one skill to the next is not based on some sort of effort or completion or partial credit. It's actually just that you've demonstrated understanding of the skill, mastery or competency. So that's the instructional model. Um, there's kind of two ways to think, well, there's a lot of ways to think about how we've evaluated the model. There's the literature review we did very early on with Johns Hopkins, which actually just intended to, to kind of show and prove that our instructional model um, is using the best practices of pedagogy. I mean, at its core, Ultimately, the goal is just to maximize one-on-one -on -one and small group interactions. And I think any educator or human being knows that that's a really important part of a learning experience. But then we did actual evaluations of the model once it was put into practice. So the first evaluation was a qualitative kind of survey of control teachers and modern classroom teachers in the same schools and buildings, asking them simple questions like, are you able to work with students closely during class? Can you use data to drive instruction? Are you able to help students catch up? And there was this massive statistically significant difference between the educators that were not using the model and ours. Um, and in that report, you know, Hopkins kind of just points to overwhelming support for our model with direct evidence that it improves differentiation and building self-direction in students. We then started to run analyses on teacher retention. The average educator of the 12,000 we've trained in our mentorship program has 14 years of experience, and they've expressed through repeated surveys that they find the job more sustainable, they find the job more enjoyable, they're likely to adopt this practice for the rest of the career. And then we have these case studies in the communities where we've gone deep with our model that shows student outcome gains, not in RCT capacity, but like a pre and post analysis that is compelling, which has led to us receiving a $3.5 million grant from the federal government to run a five-year RCT that 
gives me a headache when I think about, but is also exciting. <laughs> hey, congratulations. That That is exciting. It is. So there's a few things I want to highlight in, in what you just said. The first is the important differentiation between the concept of lecturing and the concept of direct instruction. I think a lot of times those two things get conflated, at least in like edu Twitter, um, where yeah. people fight about these things a lot, but they're, they're not the same thing. And, and to say like, we're, we're trying to get rid of lecturing is different than saying we're trying to get rid of direct instruction. There's still a place, an important place for that direct instruction. It's just that it shouldn't be everything. And I think most, um, most educators, intuitively understand that to some degree. But um, what I love is that you're kind of providing the alternative of like, okay, well, if we don't do that, what then? Um, and then the other thing I think that is kind of critical here is the the importance of motivation, both for the educators and the students, right? Sometimes we kind of skip over that really important part that is the precursor to all learning, which is People have to be motivated to do it to begin with. And if educators are not feeling motivated and engaged to do the things they're doing in the classroom, that's going to have an impact. And if students aren't feeling motivated and engaged because either things are moving too quickly or too slowly because we're trying to teach to the middle, because what else do you do? That's going to impact learning. So, um, I'm I'm loving what I'm hearing here. How's that? And I, and I'll add on the motivation piece. It is extremely difficult to be motivated when you don't have a pathway to success. It is like the easiest way to destroy motivation and efficacy. From the student end, it's not a surprise that if you go into most middle school classrooms or high school classrooms in math and you ask kids whether they like math, they say they hate it. Why do they hate it? Well, they hate it because probably around elementary school, they stopped understanding it. And they stopped understanding it because probably around elementary school, it was moving too fast. They got confused and no one had the time or the capacity to actually support them one-on-one in small groups. What we see consistently in our classrooms is that you'll get kids who for the first time in years mastered a skill. They were given the appropriate amount of time and support to actually go from not understanding something to understanding something. And it gives them this burst of energy and confidence. We eliminate that in traditional settings when we just power through content, don't create that. Same thing for teachers, right? When they know every single day, no matter how hard they try, a huge percent of their, of their students they're never going to reach, they start to question whether or not they want to be in the profession. So I just want to name that that is a key piece. And I find the discussions about teacher retention to be so interesting because it's kind of obvious. It's like, if you've been in a school building, you know how hard it is to actually achieve success as an educator. And that's going to drive teachers out of the profession. Yeah. And teachers didn't choose to be teachers like for the money and fame associated with teaching. Uh, they did it to reach those students. Uh, that's that's why they're there. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking, really, when you think about it. And so, um, I really, I really do love the idea of an alternative. I have some questions. Um, if I were an educator listening to this right now, I would be like, this sounds too good to be true. I have no time to revamp my entire course. I, um, you know, have all of these benchmarks that I have to meet, uh, this curriculum that's been handed to me that I have to just get through. How do you address that? 
on the workload piece, I don't have a fabulous answer um, <laughs> in that like it's hard and we tell that to people, which is also why we're an opt-in only model. So when we partner with schools and districts, like right when we meet with the, the principals and the superintendents and the chief academic officers, we're like, you do not force this on your teachers. The reason why is like you have to buy in and it's challenging and especially in the early stages. The cool thing about the, the workload, though, is it actually pays off both near term and long term. Near term, you will see immediate benefits in the classroom. You're going to be more relaxed. You're going to be looking at data live and working with students one-on-one in small groups. So that feels good. I mean, it just feels good to work at something and then see it translate to success. But then there's also long-term impacts on reduced planning because if you do get to teach the same course year after year, all that planning gets reused, the build, the videos you built and all that kind of stuff. So then there's a huge long-term sustainability play. Um, so that piece is... Uh, it's sort of like a half answer, right? It's like, yeah, it's hard. There's no way around it. But it's it's rewarding hard. And I think not a lot of things in teaching feel rewarding and are difficult. On the other stuff, I mean, we built this model in DC public schools and high stakes testing environments. So everything about the model honors that reality. So when we think about self-pacing, it's self-pacing for one to two weeks at a time. I had a colored pacing calendar with a curriculum, right? So like there were people coming into my rooms at random times, making sure that I was teaching Eureka math lesson, you know, 14 on a Tuesday. And I was able to do that with this model. Yes, some kids are on lesson 12, some kids are on lesson 16, but no one minded that. What they cared about was I was teaching on grade level content in a rigorous way, and I was following the general scope and sequence. When it comes to curriculum, we're curriculum agnostic intentionally because the idea is this is how you deliver information in content. It's not about what the information is. We don't control for that. So when I would normally deliver a Eureka lesson live through a lecture, I'm building an instructional video. When I would normally give an exit ticket at the end of class to everybody, I've now created a mastery check that is that same exit ticket, but students take it when they're ready. Uh, When I think about what students are doing during the bulk of the class period, which is actually doing the work, they're working on the activities that were given to me in the curriculum, right? So it's about reformatting the curriculum such that it works um, for your students, but it's not about switching it out and changing it and following a totally different pacing. That's so important. I feel like sometimes when I have these conversations with folks, what they're working on is really something that works well for independent school folks because they have a lot more freedom and flexibility. But the public school folks are like, I could never do that. This sounds like something that really could be adapted by anyone um, and um, should overall improve satisfaction and outcomes. Do you have the outcome data here? I mean, I know you said something about some of the studies that have been done, but have you seen like good impacts on like real student grades or standardized test scores, the stuff that that teachers are really um, judged on whether they should be or not? Yeah. So, I mean, the the RCT study over five years is going to do that analysis on, you know, at the level of statistical rigor that is acceptable to the, you know, biggest researchers in the game. Sure. But what we've done to date is both case studies and individual educator experiences. So, you know, you look at a school down in Texas where 100% of teachers adopted our model and the year prior versus the year when they adopted our model, you see massive test score gains in the end of year star assessment in Texas. So you look at a district out in Michigan where 45% of teachers or 50% of the teachers adopted our model and they say major gains in their K-8 math benchmark scores 
during COVID at a time when there were massive declines. Or you pull an individual teacher who teaches at one school and they'll show you their test scores in comparison to the rest of the school buildings in fourth grade math or for their multilingual learners, you know, moving across a continuum of, of language development. And it's pretty clear, right? So, you know, it's hard without an RCT study to evaluate those outcomes in any better way than we have. And I think what we've seen is that the data is pretty darn compelling. Yeah, that's pretty fantastic, actually. I mean, of course, yes, the RCT is like, it has to happen to give you the the backing. But I think for a lot of you know, individual teachers, they want to know that people like them have done this and have seen those effects. Um, and and so it sounds like that's really happening. How many people are using this right now? I mean, the answer, it's, it's, it's both the answer that's impossible to provide, but I can certainly give you sort of leading indicators. The best measure of how many teachers have really robustly learned our model is our virtual mentorship program. Our virtual mentorship program takes interested educators and pairs them with experts at our model. And then they they go through a pretty intense training experience to design their own modern classroom. Um, that is a, a program that costs money. There are scholarships in certain cities and states that philanthropists have fund, and then districts will pay for it for their teachers. And in that way, we've put 12,000 teachers through that program. So, you know, a, a reasonably big number. We also have a free course because we're a nonprofit. We don't gatekeep information, content, and templates. We, 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 charge for human time, essentially. The free course has over 60,000 teachers in it. But that's not a great measure of implementation, obviously, because, you know, you could sign up for the free course tomorrow, spend seven minutes in it and leave and you still count as a new account. So the mentorship program is much more robust of, of an analysis. But I, I mean, the answer is thousands, thousands use it, thousands are, are implementing it. Um, and what's fascinating is it's global. Um, I mean, 95% of these people are in the US, but I mean, there's an entire school in Zambia that implements our model. I, I did a, my first ever re podcast recording was two teachers in Perth, Australia, who run a multi-grade uh, English classroom and use our model. So um, in that way, it's like kind of like you, what you said, anyone can do it. It's a new way to teach. It doesn't have prerequisites or conditions that would uh, stop someone from diving. Yeah. So I want to highlight that real quick um, in case you missed it, folks. There is, in fact, a, a free version to get more information about this and to learn about it. Um, if you go to modern modernclassrooms.org, right? So modernclassrooms.org is our website, which can take you to the free course. If you want to go straight to the free course, it's learn.modernclassrooms.org. And thank you for emphasizing the S at the end of classroom because it is classrooms. <laughs> Um, yeah, both of, and, and I want to stress again, like there is not something hidden, like you're not going to go in there and go, I wish I had access to what you wish you had access to was training and support from a human being, being able to submit assignments and get feedback and get coaching calls. That's what comes at a cost, but all the resources and content are there. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously I love that cause that's, that's what we do. And also we have a an S at the end that sometimes throws people that learning scientists.org. Yeah. But right. The, the goal here is 
to help educators. And so it's not trying to hide any information. It's trying to get that into the hands of people that it can help. And then if you'd like more one-on-one time, yeah, we're going to need to make some money in order to make that uh, that time worthwhile. But the goal is really just to get it into the hands of as many folks as possible. So I'm really happy that we can, can try to help in that regard to get this into more educators' hands. Um, because I think you're doing some really fantastic things that are, you know, supported by the the research and um, making hopefully a lasting impact. So thank you for the good work you're doing. I appreciate it. Thank you for spotlighting our work. It, we can't, we, it, it's hard in a K-12 education system where people's attention is really spread thin to be able to, you know, captivate folks uh, and, and introduce something new. So it's avenues like this that allow a whole new group of educators to learn about our work. So I appreciate you creating the space for us to share more. Absolutely. So Kareem, I'm going to ask you for one more thing. And that is, if folks are really limited on time, it's the holidays right now. Um, when this gets released, it's probably post-holidays. But let's say somebody's listening to this and they're like, I am so busy. I'm in the car right now. I don't have a lot of time. What is like one thing that you would advise an educator to try in their classroom tomorrow? What a great question. I mean, it's a tricky one at the Modern Classrooms Project because part of what is hard but special about our model is it is a bit of a classroom makeover. Um, I think the thing that I would push anyone to really try, though, is introducing self-pacing. And you can do that without necessarily immediately building your own instructional videos. You can do that without doing it for two or three weeks at a time. But I think there's real power in saying, hey, students, you're going to tackle these three skills or activities this week at your own pace. And here's your little roadmap to do it. And I'm going to check in with you. And here are the benchmarks. Go. And I think it's pretty stunning when you do that. A, just how diverse student needs are. B, just how valuable it is for you to be relieved from holding students' hands at the front of the room. And then C, I think it it starts to kind of unleash for educators just how distinct it is to teach from the front of the room and force students to be compliant versus actually having students be in the driver's seat. And I think what you learn quickly there is there are groups of students who need a lot of work on the 21st century skills that if we don't address now, will compound on itself in a really destructive way. And then there's other students who are actually giving almost too much attention to and limiting their ability to fly. So it would be to try to introduce a burst of self-pacing somewhere in some scope of, of learning to just get a feel for how different and exciting that can be. I love it. Well, we're about out of time here. So I just want to say thank you again for joining me today. Once again, you can visit modernclassrooms.org and you can take a free course there. You can learn more about the project. Anything else you want to leave our listeners with, Kareem? No, that's it. I just hope all the educators listening are getting some rest. I know it is still a tricky game out there. It's exhausting. You do some of the hardest jobs in the world. So I appreciate everyone for listening and hopefully um, there's some nuggets of information that are exciting that I shared today. All right. Thank you so much. This episode is funded by listeners like you. To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists.